If I tell them you're in your right mind, they'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. Prison? Because I'm in my right mind? What a world. Go to prison, you'll never act again. Welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast about life's big questions. I am Marshall McCready. Today's podcast will be three parts. The first part will be a question. I will be discussing a question. Uh, the second part will be podcast updates, some housekeeping. And then the third part is I'm going to read... Uh, a post that I wrote recently called Punch Down to Challenge Power, and I'm going to give some kind of background on why I wrote that post and um, an important qualification to it that I left out, um, and hopefully that will be interesting. Okay, so starting with part one, here is a question for you. Are you letting cultural values you disagree with hold you back by accepting society's definition of mental health? That's the question. Are you letting cultural values you disagree with hold you back by accepting society's definition of mental health? Here are a couple observations to kind of frame this question. Who and what is labeled mentally ill is influenced by culture. So um, I wrote this blog post in 2018 I wrote it because I had seen two cases of mass shooters and the media, uh, the media's framing of these mass shooters uh, within you know a short time span of each other. So the first one, I'm gonna totally butcher this name, like Sefulo Habenev something Saipov. I okay, let's just say Saipov. Uh, he was a Uzbekistani immigrant who murdered eight people by ramming them with a rental truck. Uh, when confronted by police. Saipov emerged from the truck brandishing a paintball gun. A search of the crime scene discovered notes written by Saipov that indicated an ideological affiliation with ISIS and an ISIS flags. flag. Um, but despite reports of his being troubled and kind of having an erratic temperament, kind of having a time controlling his mood, and he couldn't hold a stable job, so despite reports about all of this, uh, the kind of media consensus was, you know, this was an ideologically motivated attack uh, associated with ISIS. So that happened, but then, you know, close to around the same time, there was this guy, Stephen Paddock, who I'm, you'll probably remember this for sure. Uh, he was a white re retiree who was responsible for, uh, I think, what is still the deadliest mass shooting um, in recent U.S. history, he murdered 58 people by, like, firing on a group of concert goers from a hotel room. Um, he smuggled 23 guns into a hotel um, installed cameras to, to watch when the police came to his hotel room. Um, but what's so bizarre about this case of, of Stephen Paddock is that the, um, there was an investigation, and it, it came up with nothing, no evidence to suggest that he had any ideological motivation. And it was the lack of evidence that he had an ideological motivation that led people to think that he must have been mentally ill. He must have been. And people kind of pounced on this uh, report that he would occasionally take Valium. Um, and it's like, oh, well, that means he's so mentally ill that he killed 58 people. So what's the point? The point is, 
it seems like culture, uh, cultural bias, basically, which in bias isn't a bad thing. Like a belief is a bias. So having cultural beliefs influences the ascription of mental illness. Since um, this first guy, Saipov, since he kind of represented some fears that people have in our culture um, about, you know, a different culture coming in or whatever, he was seen as an ideological threat, a cultural threat. Whereas this other guy, because his motivations were opaque and because he was, you know, had a, a normal, normal quote unquote name, um, and didn't kind of represent any of these fears, uh, cultural fears, he was seen as mentally ill. Okay, so there's there's one kind of example of a representation of how um, cultural bias impacts mental illness. But here's some, here's some others. You know, when people talk about Trump derangement syndrome. Oh, they, they hate Trump so much that it's like uh, a mind virus has corrupted their minds or you know people talk about wokeness or oh it's a contagious disease it's like being transmitted through our institutions wokeness it's eating people's minds but then you also have kind of on the other side of things oh people have these cultural biases these implicit biases and they need to be trained deprogrammed re-educated uh, in order to be healed of these psychic problems right they have these psychic hindrances these cultural biases, these implicit biases that must be healed. That's another way of talking about um, cultural difference in terms of psychic uh, phenomena. Going, oh, it's not just that we have an intellectual cultural disagreement. It's that um, you're, you're broken <laughs> in some way. And that's what explains our disagreement. And, you know, you even see this in, like, casual conversation. Like, when we say, like, oh, he's crazy or that's wild or that's crazy. Uh, we usually al always mean that's strange, right? It's strange in some way. That's abnormal. That's beyond the realm of the expected. Um, and, you know, beyond the realm of the expected is beyond the culturally familiar. Those are the same thing. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I was thinking about this experience I had recently where I was getting on a plane and I was about to sit down on my seat and all of a sudden I noticed that there was a flight attendant who was like standing so close to me and I couldn't, I didn't have enough room to even turn my body to face the seats to sit down from the walkway. And what was so bizarre was when I turned and I looked at him, he had all this room behind him. Like it wasn't, he was just standing awkwardly close to me. And it, I, I gave him kind of a look and glared at him and he still didn't move. So finally I had to literally say like, excuse me, can you please stand back and he was like oh okay and it was like he was like totally unaware that he was standing not not just awkwardly close but so close i couldn't even turn like that's and so i remember having this thought right kind of flashed through my mind of like well maybe he's got some kind of something that makes him socially awkward right and I think this is a common thought that people have, like, oh, maybe he's got a learning disability or something, you know, something that could explain this weird behavior with the standing. But I think this goes to show that even something as mundane and basic as how people stand, it can almost signify to us 
depending on our situation and you know our culture basically it can signify a psychic abnormality or a psychic problem something that we see as a as an obstacle um so i try not to think that way uh right but i think that that's a thought that is reflexive for a lot of people because of how mental illness is discussed uh okay so Remember, the general question was, are you letting cultural values you disagree with hold you back by accepting society's definition of mental health? And we observed that who and what is labeled mentally ill is influenced by culture. But here's another observation. It's just kind of weird to say that someone who is like continuously accomplishing their goals with like skill and they're like getting better at all the things that they're setting out to do and it's like going well for them, it would be really just strange to to say that that person is mentally ill or unhealthy, right? I think that that's, that just strikes us as a little um, not correct, right? Just kind of, um, it's like a category error. Like, because um, when things are going great in life, your life is in order. It's not disordered. And so it's really, it would be really weird if like, say, say, like over the next year, your life just got progressively better, not in the sense that you were like happier all the time, but in the sense that you were like becoming more disciplined and accomplishing your goals and things were actually starting to go your way because you were working so hard and so diligent and consistent. Um, and you were getting stronger at the various uh, skills that you need to. It would be really weird if I walked up to you and I said like, oh my gosh, you're so much more unhealthy than you were a year ago. I can't believe how unhealthy you are. Uh, you probably have a mental disorder. You would be like, I'm sorry, I think I'm more mentally ordered than I was last year by a long shot. And what, what, how can you even say that? And so like, imagine I imagine there's a disorder called, um, let's see, like mug, mug disorder. I just made that up to say I think it's really bad. And I go, oh my gosh, Based on my evaluation of your life, of your behavior, and of the context of your behavior, you have mug disorder. You would be like, you would be like, I don't even need to know what mug disorder is to know that I don't have it because my life is not disordered. I don't have any disorder because my life is in order. It doesn't even matter what the specific symptoms or signs of mug disorder are, I know that it doesn't apply to me. So this is, this is the consequence of, of observing that uh, mental illness is socially constructed and culturally relative. And if that's the case, then what is mentally healthy is individually specific and contingent upon your goals, right? You know, I, it doesn't matter what you think about Trump just the conversation, the discourse around Trump and mental illness was really interesting to me because, you know, here is someone who is certainly doing well for himself. Like you could, you, you can argue like, well, he, you know, had to work this hard or that hard to get it and it, he just landed it, whatever. But it's like, well, he's still managing all these businesses. So like, he's still doing stuff day to day. He must be doing something. And then he became president, right? And his children seem to like him. And yeah, he does all this stuff I don't like, but does that mean he's mentally ill? Like if that's mental, if, if having 
if maintaining um, wealth and becoming president aren't signs that you're doing something right in a society in which those things are, you know, highly valued, I don't know how to how to even tell what's healthy or not anymore. It's like the whole thing kind of falls apart. So, um, yeah, so we use these mental health categories. We weaponize them against people who are different uh, from us. Um, so I think that we are starting to kind of get our minds around this as a society. And I think we're seeing this more with like physical stuff where people were like, oh, like the pro-fatness movement. Like I'm not, or <laughs> I don't know if pro-fatness is, I don't know what the right term is for it, but the body body acceptance, there it is, body acceptance movement or whatever. Um, there's a sense in which I disagree with them. Like if what they mean by healthy, if they say, oh, being really fat is healthy. If what they mean by healthy is conducive to living longer in our present environment no right there's no reason to think that but if what they mean is hey the things in life that i value happen to make me fat that doesn't mean that i shouldn't value them and that i agree with in principle or like in general like take a sumo wrestler Sumo wrestlers have to eat a lot of calories. Like, depending on their training schedule, they eat between, like, five and 10,000 calories um, on a daily basis. There's, that's a big variation, but even starting out at 5,000 is a ton. I looked this up a while ago. Um, so, like, if you were to say, oh, well, what's a healthy diet for a sumo wrestler versus, oh, what's a healthy diet for a gymnast? The answers are going to be totally different. And one diet might be fit a certain definition of healthy like one diet might be more conducive to living longer for the average person but is life just about living or is life about what we accomplish while living you know what i mean so like really the best definition of health is a function of your goals like if you if your goal is to become like the number one top sumo wrestler or bodybuilder or something like that then you are pursuing that goal at the cost of you know reducing some of your life expectancy but you're going no i want to accomplish this in life i don't just want to live like it's worth sacrificing just life for actually living um so that makes sense um there there's two other quick stories i want to tell um that kind of um, that to me strike me as kind of important here, um, as representing something important. The first is, um, that one time I met this guy who is a Christian who is super gay. And he said that, like, he doesn't, uh, he thinks that it's a sin to act upon, uh, homosexual attraction. And so he is trying as hard as he can and with great devotion, right? This isn't, it, 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 he sees it as the right thing to do as the thing that he's supposed to do, right? That he's devoted to. He's devoted to not acting upon his uh, homosexual attraction so that he can become closer to God. And probably like many people, 
to me, that strikes me as a profound injustice. Like I, I felt, I felt immense sadness upon hearing his situation. But, you know, quickly I realized like, well, that's really, I'm really interpreting what he's going through through my own perspective here. And if to him, being a Christian and living the Christian life has, like, if to him, that seems to have more value, that seems to be the the better path for him. I don't know his life. Who am I to say that his interpretation of that is incorrect? Um, I don't have much basis to say that. Um, uh, so, uh, but that's an interesting case because think about the conversation nationally about therapy that's aimed at um, turning gay people straight or whatever. I'm forgetting the term. There's there's a term for that. Um, and also, you know, this is related to the kind of gender affirming care debate of should a therapist ever suggest that maybe someone who thinks that they're trans isn't trans? Is that ever okay? Um, and, you know, is it ever okay for a therapist like, take this person that I talked about, this gay Christian person, the therapist, I believe that therapists should be helping patients accomplish what they want to accomplish in life, should be helping them have the kind of life that they want to have. And so a therapist for that person would be helping them repress or overcome or redirect their homosexual attraction feelings, right? And is that um, you know, is that the, uh, marginalization, the social marginalization of homosexuality? Don't know. So there's that. And then one other quick story is, um, I went in college, I knew this guy who hit his girlfriend. I saw it. And later he was at such a loss because it was out of character. Like I'd never seen that ever happened before and I don't think it had uh, as far as I know and he was at such a loss to explain his own behavior that he said that uh, this like hair uh, regrowth treatment topical ointment led him to do that and to me it struck me as to me it seems so obvious that he just desperately needed some external explanation that could account for his behavior and that like, oh, this doesn't say anything about him as a person or, you know, his character or anything of like that. Um, but to him, I could tell also at the same time that he so desperately needed to believe that in the moment, or it was like his grip on the world entirely would be crushed and he would just lose all sense of direction. So it's like, uh, you know, what is true there? I don't know. Um, Anyways, um, I think that people just need to think a little bit more about what they mean when they talk about mental health and mental illness. And we throw around these terms all the time. And people even lately are like brandishing their diagnoses. Um, and, and you know what it is, really? What it is, is people are afraid of the freedom that they have to make their own decisions in life. It's crushing to have that responsibility, I think. And so it's really helpful if you have something that you can point to always. Like, 
you you say, oh, I have the, this disorder spirit demon thing inside of me called X mental illness diagnosis, and that caused me to do this. So I don't have to actually take responsibility for it as me. It was the illness that made me do it. And I always have this excuse, always. So I can always get out of pushing myself uh, to the brink of my ability to to learn and to develop, right? It's an excuse at the most fundamental level. Not always, right? I'm not saying it always is, or even close to always, but I'm saying that it can be. I'm saying that that's possible, and I'm saying that given what we know about ourselves and how we tend to look for reasons not to work hard, that's something that we know about ourselves. Most people have that. It just follows from that that we will cling to um, the ideas that are seen as most culturally legitimate for us to get out of work, right? When I worked, when I taught classes, um, well, I taught a class, an undergraduate um, sociology class at uh, UNT, there were students who had like these special dispensations because they had supposedly these disorders, but it struck me as like, uh, here are people it seemed, it seemed like here are students from the higher class backgrounds who had the cultural knowledge to exploit the fact that you, they could get diagnosed with these disorders for the sake of having um, more academic opportunities and more like, you know, now they have more time to take tests, it's easier to get better grades. They have more resources by leveraging the diagnosis, right? So like, it becomes a means to an end there. Um, so uh, there's there's all these different ways that mental illness categories can be used that, that people don't think about. So yeah, but it, it, you know, it's just that question of, are you letting cultural values you disagree with hold you back by accepting society's definition of mental health? I think that's worth considering. Now it is time for part two. So part two podcast updates. First of all, you might have heard the schnazzy new intro that I made. Pretty proud of that. I took some clips from this old show that you can find on YouTube called Close Encounter that I would recommend. Uh, It's black and white and very old, uh, but it's about uh, existentialism and kind of specifically about uh, Sartre's, John Paul Sartre's philosophy of existentialism. Um, is, that's where I got the dialogue clips from. Uh, anyways, I'm getting back into the habit of podcasting. I switched the podcast over to Substack. Um, that's where uh, it will be hosted. Um, I'm going to try to release a podcast each week. Um, hopefully, uh, most of them will ha- be interviews or dialogues with other people, kind of concentrated on the philosophy of mental health um, and other ideas, cultural, political, sociological, that interest me. <laughs> And, um, but if it's not an interview or a dialogue, it'll just be me kind of presenting kind of like I just did some kind of topic, um, for consideration. Um, but I am excited to announce that I'm recording a podcast soon with a professor in the sociology department at uh, the University of North Texas and one of my mentors. We are going to be talking about the scientific worldview, specifically whether or not such a thing is even possible. I argue that Although science can, and I would argue should, inform our perspective, I don't think that science alone can constitute a worldview because I don't think that science has 
embedded within it as a method, a theory of priority or a way to figure out which risks are worth taking. Or another way of putting that is it's not moral or action focused. It doesn't tell you what to do. can't tell you what decision to make. That's my argument. Um, and he argues to the contrary. And what's interesting is that I think that the conversation will kind of touch on related philosophical problems. For example, whether or not you believe that humans have free will, which I interpret as whether or not we have the ability to modify the environments that will shape our futures, our future behavior and our future feelings and such. If we don't have the ability to make decisions like that, um, then we don't have free will and we're determined by situational external causes. And what's interesting is what is what does it mean to have a to have a world view if you don't have free will? Like what does it mean to to view things? I don't know. You can kind of see how that gets kind of messy really quick. Um, so we're going to talk about that. I think that'll be really interesting. Um, and uh, I'll have that episode uh, up soon. And um, those are all of the updates. Um, if you like this podcast, please uh, share it with people. Um, and with that, let's move on to part three. Initializing part three of the podcast. All right, this is part three. I'm going to read here in just a second a blog post I wrote called Punch Down to Challenge Power. Um, this is a post uh, I wrote. It's a left-wing power-focused argument against talking about your personal privilege regardless of whether or not you consider yourself to be very privileged or very underprivileged. Um Basically, the idea is that the social construction of privilege, what we mean when we say privilege, is something that can be weaponized by people who are actually powerful to distract from their power. And supposedly, um, equalizing privilege requires the fighting of power, but this distracts from that project while pretending to be it, to be the same thing. Fighting power is the same thing as fighting privilege, but really, they're not the same. Okay, here is the post. Punching down generally means further deprivileging an already less privileged social population. The phrase's specific meaning in context depends on the speaker's definition of privilege. Punching down is only really punching down if the people being punched are actually less privileged. When the powerful get to culturally define privilege in a way that benefits them, Punching down becomes synonymous with protecting the powerful. Many have uncritically accepted a definition of privilege promoted by influential people. Powerful politicians, celebrities, academics, and journalists argue that privilege is a function of immutable identity characteristics. They do this to distract from and thereby safeguard the real sources of their power. There are obviously statistical relationships between group-level identity characteristics and sociocultural power. Some of these correlations are strong, but none are close to perfect. The powerful people with quote-unquote underprivileged identities claim they are the lucky few. We shouldn't focus on them and their power, they tell us, because they are exceptions to the general rules of privilege. Coincidentally, their purportedly quote-unquote privileged friends in power also claim to be exceptions. They say they are exceptions to the general rule that privilege brings greed. 
we shouldn't focus on their power because they're generous people hell-bent on equalizing social privilege. It turns out that we shouldn't pay attention to the power of any powerful people who talk about their privilege because they all happen to be exceptions. Powerful people see that privilege talk protects their power. They weaponize privilege talk to outcompete their rivals to power. Often, this means directing people's attention to the power of privilege deniers. You see this play out on the national stage between congressional Democratic and Republican politicians. However, since privilege talkers tend to group together, they often compete with each other. They weaponize privilege talk against fellow privilege talkers when doing so stands to increase their status. Privilege talk is a cultural skill that is becoming indispensable in elite culture. For the powerful, the question isn't how privileged am I, but how can I use privilege talk to move up? That's why when people in power decree, quote, don't punch down from above, they implicitly mean, quote, don't challenge this vocabulary I use to protect and increase my power. They want you to adopt the vocabulary they're skilled at using to trick people into thinking they are righteous people with legitimate power. The way to challenge power is to challenge the language it hides behind. Punch up by punching down on privilege talk. Okay, so that's the end of the post with my snarky concluding sentence there. Um, but I hope it makes sense, you know, the basic idea is speech is an act. Like when you say something, that's a speech act. And you can think of when we say something for a reason, what matters more is what we intend to do by saying what we say, rather than what exactly we say, right? Because we are trying to say the thing that will accomplish our goal in the situation. That's the thing that we're trying to say more than what it is we actually say. And so it's more accurate to say that that's the thing we're trying to say, right? If there's a better way to say what we're trying to say, then we're going to be like, oh, okay, well, that's what I meant. Uh, that's what I meant to say. Um, so when you think of talking as a form of acting in which the intent behind a statement is distinct from the content of that statement, like if I say hello to you and I say hello, I'm saying it that way to indicate something to you. And that's really the message. It's not really hello, it's the word combined with, embedded in how I'm saying it. Um, so uh, the idea is that people talk about privilege in order to uh, gain power in a situation. You know, like I have been told explicitly to my face in person uh, that because I'm a white guy, my opinion matters less right? Like, because of things I can't change and that I didn't choose, uh, my opinion matters less. Um, and I, what, what, what do they gain by saying that? You guys, say, say you believe that that's true. Like, just say, just say that that's true. Just say that it is. Even still, why would someone point that out in class? Why are they pointing it out now? Why are they bringing it up now? It's to say it's so that their opinion matters more than mine, and everyone sees that. That's the point. That's why they say it, right? It's like 
it, it's in, in no wonder, like, if you can get away with saying something like that, with basically saying, hey, your opinion doesn't matter as much as mine because of things that neither of us chose. What an awesome thing to be able to say. Oh, my gosh. Like, if you can say that and be convicted of it, you will feel so good about yourself and so smart, right? So it's, it's no... It's not difficult to understand why people would abuse that. You know what I mean? Um, but the thing is, what gets me is even the people who supposedly are super privileged, like the super rich white guy, like Joe Biden type guy, they get a pass by just talking about how privileged they are. So there's this, there's this sense in which talking about their privilege is an action that they are performing with the intent of distracting people from their power and going, hey, like, I'm, a, I'm one of the good ones. Everything that I do is moral and upstanding because, because I agree with you about uh, social equality and I want to equalize power, I say, to maintain my power, right? People are conflating the content of people's statements for the impact that those statements are intended to have. Um, and those things are not the same. Um, the future is shaped by intention. You know, if you can't say something right the first time, you're probably going to try to figure out how to say it better the second time to make whatever you want to happen by saying it happen. That's what you do. So, if you want to have a good prediction for the future, you really want to know what people are trying to say. That will help you know how to predict the future and how to protect yourself um, and to act proactively uh, to solve all your various goals in life. You want to know what people are trying to reformulate um, and say eventually, because uh, that will help you grapple with the future and, and get what you want done. Done. But, you know, the important qualification here is that, you know, I talk a lot about power, 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 but you know what? Not all power can be bad. It literally can't. And here's why. Because you are, by striving to change the world as you see fit, you are enacting your power over the world and over people. Like, when you vote for a policy to happen that would impact or restrict or, you know, what people can and can't do, you're, you're using your power to shape the world as you see it. We're always using our power, right? Living, acting in the world and pursuing our goals, that is using power. So the question is, the question can't be, is using power good? Because if the answer to that is no, then you should kill yourself. Like, no, I'm like, seriously, like, if using power is bad, kill yourself, because living is the exercise of power, because you have to act to live, right? Even at, like, think about it at the most basic level, if Joe has food, and you don't have food, and Joe has the only food, you need to figure out how to get food from Joe to live, and that means acting. And how you go about that says a lot about your character. It says everything about you. All there is to say about you is said through how you navigate these problems in life, right? That what you do, how you respond is the answer. Uh, that is you, um, your activity. Some power has to be good. And that's not 
you know, I don't mention that in this post. In this post, it seems like I'm someone who's just perpetually power critical for the sake of being power critical, right? But am I now, but now I'm uncritical of the perspective that I should be power critical. Do you see the problem? I become a fanatic about power. I become, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to use as much power as I can to shape the world to be without power, but I'm still exercising power in doing so. And I'm fooling myself if I think that I'm somehow exempt from the rules that govern all of humanity in terms of their action and the consequences of their behavior. Um, so some power has to be good. In life, I think, you know, one of the biggest questions in life is to figure out, well, what justifies the exercise of power, right? How can I live? How can I justify my every waking moment in my behavior, right? So the question isn't, how do we get rid of power? It's, which power do we want to institute? Which power is good? Because we're always, we're always, through our activity, uh, exerting power to change the world. So the question is, is, well, which way do we want to do it, right? Since we're always doing it, which way do we want to do it? And that's the question. And that's a really burdensome question, you know? Like, wow, like, how do how should you spend a day trying to figure out that question? Like, it's hard to even find answers about how to ask the question. Um, it's so difficult to ask. Um, so, well, I rambled on and on about that, but um, I hope that uh, this post was kind of thought-provoking or interesting, um, kind of paradoxical maybe, um, and that you found this podcast um, entertaining. And i um, really excited to record the next podcast um, with uh, Dr. McCaffrey, uh, the professor from UNT, and I'll have that released soon. So, all right. Hope everyone listening has a great day, and I'll talk to you next time.